This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. That's 800-259-5673. Almost everybody around the school, around BMA, knows, and it's probably been talked about too much, that before the Lord called me in the ministry, I was in the funeral business for a long time. But what most people don't know, and I don't know that I've ever told it before in chapel or anywhere, how I came by the capital to get into the funeral business to start with. When I was in high school, my senior year, I was 18 in September, and my dad took me to the county courthouse in Grossback, Texas, where we lived, Limestone County, and signed all the papers with me there and taking oaths in front of the county judge to have my minor's disabilities removed. And what that did was uh, disabilities, things that keep you from doing legal things as a minor, it took it away so I could do some of these things before I was 21 years old. And its purpose was for me to learn how to uh, sell and write annuity contracts in his agency and for him to teach me how to trade Securities. I was able to do it when I was 18 years old. And he gave me a little money to start doing that with. And uh, by the time I was 33 years old, I'd advanced to trading commodity futures and contracts. And one time I got involved over my head thinking I was smarter and better than I really was, and I overextended myself one time, tremendously, very, very foolishly, and simultaneously got other people on a, in a precarious position financially, liabilities of all kinds. It was not technically illegal. I couldn't have gone to jail for it, but it's highly unethical as far as putting other people in jeopardy without their uh, full consent. And I remember one night, particularly one day, excuse me, going to the post office and reaching in my post office box and pulling out a bunch of mail, and in one of those envelopes was a margin call from a brokerage house in Dallas, and they were demanding... $465,000. And in those kind of contracts and things, you can establish those kinds of positions. I was a position of about $2.3 million. 
but you can establish it on about 5 or 10% capital. But the position had gone the other way. Started out $4,600, but two weeks later, in the hole, $465,000. Now, that will cause you to stay up at night. <laughs> that will give you chest pains. It'll make you worry that these guys from the Chicago Board of Exchange are going to send somebody named Gino and Lefty down there and break your legs or something. <laughs> and cause other people lots of problems. That's funny, but it's not funny in a way. When you endanger your family and all those kind of things. And you will stay up. You can't sleep. Now, that was unethical. At the very best, irresponsible. Now, the Lord got me out of it, and everything went very well after that. There's a lot of sleepless nights and concern. I was, as David says here in Psalm 32, he says, I was dried up there in verse 4. The Lord's hand was heavy upon him. He dried up like a drought in the summer. Now, I hope nobody here is in those kind of financial circumstances or ever has been, but any other kind of sin, deceit, probably the root of that sin was greed, sin of pride, lust, deceit, all those kind of things that roam around in everybody's life in one degree or another, at one time or another. When those things float around, you get close to the point of actually being, if it wasn't actual sin, you begin to feel these same things that the psalmist is writing about. Your moisture dried up. You couldn't function mentally and emotionally. You've gone to pot. In other Baptist documents, it says these benefits that we lose, although we don't lose as saved people, lose our state or position of justification, we can at times lose the benefits. These other statements will say the benefits that we experience from being justified and sanctified are that we have the assurance of God's love. In other words, when you lose that, you don't feel like God loves you. Or you may feel like God shouldn't love you. It also says you lose, if you're saved, you're justified, you have peace of conscience. Beyond the emotional stability of feeling like you're loved by God, you lose your mental assurance of your standing with God. goes on to say also that you lose a growth in grace. In other words, your sanctification for a while seems to come to a stop. You're not growing in the love of God. You're not growing in the Word. And all these other areas of spiritual growth. That's what happens when you get off in these circumstances. And when you lose those benefits, you start to feel like you have dried up. The writer of this psalm, best we know, was David, King David. May have closely been aligned at the time he was writing Psalm 51 that we're more familiar with. His famous psalm of confession before God. When he had gotten off into deceit again, pride, Adultery, murder, and all those things around the 
events or the circumstances of the episode with Bathsheba. And David says, with all these things piling on top of me, all this guilt and all this sin, David wasn't feeling like God loved him anymore. He wasn't feeling like his mind was ever at ease again. His conscience was disturbed. And he had come to a halt in his walk with God. Anything like that ever happened to you? Is it happening to you even today? It's not happening to you, I can assure you this. It's happening to someone in a congregation where you minister or Sunday school class. Everyone gets in these circumstances at one time or another. But beyond David just telling us that he was in that circumstance, he goes on to tell us how to get out of that particular frame of mind or spiritual setting. We have a trustee that farms about 6,000 acres of cotton up in northeast Arkansas. Driving around with him one day when he was tending to all his affairs and fields, he was both a dry land farmer and a irrigated farmer. You can go by these patches in the middle of the summer. The cotton plants have come up about that high, but it's the middle of a drought too. And you go by these fields and they'd be, the plants would be shriveled up and the leaves would be drooping, the ground would be cracked. And you go by another field down the roadways and the ground would be look nice and moist and the plants would be very uh, verdant, full leaves standing up and all those kind of things. And the only difference was between the two fields and the drought was that Randy had gone to the place on the irrigation canal and opened the floodgate that irrigated that particular field. And it caused a difference. David being in a state of spiritual drought here in Psalm 32 turned to God and he opened the floodgates of restoration towards God. There are three of these in this particular psalm. This isn't a strict exegesis of the psalm, but it is a exposition of the main thoughts of the psalm, along the theme of restoration, enjoying your justification once again. Three floodgates that you or I can open that David opened. That will restore us to that place in our lives where again, we are assured of God's love. Our conscience is more clear. And we began to grow in grace once again. First of all, look with me in the next verse, after verse 3, I believe it is, that David opened the floodgates of confession. Verse 5, David said, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity I have not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Silah meaning a sort of a musical kind of configuration. The idea is stop and think about that fact for just a moment. Ponder the fact that you just read. David said, I confessed my sins. Interestingly to me, in that verse, the three, I think, are the three main words for sin in the Old Testament. You come into English as some version of sin. It says sin, the one word, and then it says transgressions. Then it says Iniquity. All these things were involved. The idea, basically, there's more variations and nuances, but primarily I think sin is the idea of the impetuous kind of act. The thing that you do 
that you let the circumstances of the moment and the heat of the hour get under your skin and you act impulsively without real feeling, real intention to cause trouble, a real intention to be to get at odds with God in some way. Easy to do. Oftentimes. Several years ago, I went into a business one night we had, and there were a lot of people in the main part of the building at visitations. And our older lady that we had that was the receptionist at night, in her mid to late 70s, very, very wonderful lady, a perfect lady, great Christian character, now, I walked in that night to check after hours, see how things were going with the large crowd there. And I noticed Edith over in the corner by the receptionist's desk, receptionist desk, with her head down. I thought she must have had a headache or was feeling bad or whatever it was. And I walked over there and said, Edith, what's wrong? And Edith looked up and she'd been crying. Her mascara was all messed up. She had her glasses off, daubing her eyes. And you could tell her voice was weak. And I immediately thought to myself, something, somebody in that crowd had done something to Edith. And I said, did somebody hurt you, Edith? She said, no. With her tears and dabbing her eyes, she said, I have lost my salvation. I said, what? <laughs> You've lost your salvation. And I said, well, what happened? She said, well, one of these people came by and did something ugly. And I just lost my temper and blurted out and called them an ugly name. And I have sinned and I have lost my salvation. That is Wesleyan teaching to a degree. She was very, very big in the church of Christ. And after I tried to talk to her a while and assure her she wasn't going to hell that night, I asked her, said, Edith, what in the world, you know, has this happened to you before? I said, several times. That's what a lot of people labor under. She had, well, had the feeling she had lost God's love. Her conscience was disturbed because of what she had done. That's the impetuous kind of sin. It also talks about transgressions. And I'm afraid this is what affects me more than those other kinds of sins. Transgressions is the idea of I know something's wrong and I probably ought not to do it. I probably ought not to get involved. And I think about it and I ponder it for a while. And then I go ahead and do it anyway. And thinking I can overcome the circumstances or the repercussions of it later. That's the transgression. Do you ever do that? Are you suffering under a transgression this very hour? A lot of people are, I know. I hope nobody here, but a lot of people are. That's another kind of sin. Yeah, I thought about it and I did it anyway. It wasn't the devil made me do it. It wasn't my wife made me do it. I thought about it and I did it anyway. Then it talks about iniquity. Some people would say that this is describing to some extent the guilt that clings to us after we've committed sin. In other words, it might not be this impetuous thing, it might... Be, or could be this thing I thought about and did it anyway, but now I come to the point, I say, you know what? I'm a sinner. I did it. It all belongs on me. It's not a result of my upbringing and my environment. It's not a result of the society around me. 
It's not a result of my uh, genetic makeup. It's not my parents' fault. It's not my wife's fault. It's not Dr. Atterbury's fault or anybody else. It's my fault. I own it. It's me. That's what David was going through. That's what we all go through at one time or another. So when we get to the point we're ready for relief, we need the floodgates to open to reassure us of our love, God's love for us. First of all, we need to do what David did. We need to confess it. That's not the devil's fault. It's not somebody else's fault. It's all my fault. And if I've done it in a moment of passion, I need to admit it's still wrong. If I thought about it, I have even more guilt, I think. Some people sin. If you get to the age that I am and have the advantages that I've had in education and ministry and being around godly people for so long, I believe it's even more of a guilt situation when somebody that has lots of advantages in life sins anyway. But you have to confess it to start the floodgates of God's love to open back to you once again. So that's the first floodgate that we open to irrigate us back again, the floodgate of confession. Then David goes on and mentions another. I'd call this the floodgate of supplication. Look with me down in verse 7. David said, Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me in trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. He starts to praise God. And then he mentions also in verse 8, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as a horse or as a mule. Well, how many of us here today I started to use another word, a compound word for mule, but I did not sin in public. That was almost an impetuous sin. How many of us are act like mules today? Oftentimes, mules and horses. What do you have to do with a mule or a horse? You have to put that bit in his mouth because it hurts his mouth. And you can turn him because of the pain that it causes him. Don't get to the point before you confess that God has to handle you like a mule or a horse. And make it hurt so bad that you'll turn. You want to do what, have what David had here. The idea, the concept of rather than me being needed to be turned that way. That you can ask God to guide you with his eye. God has a different aspect or perspective of life and circumstances than we do. Much, much better perspective. Being omniscient and omnipotent. He knows what's around the corner. He knows what's going to happen in the future. He knows all your proclivities to sin and your impetuous acts. And we can ask God God, help me not to be a mule. God, help me, you guide me with your eye. With what your knowledge is and not what my experience and my knowledge and my perspective is. Guide me from your perspective. 
Bible says that God will guide the order, the steps of a godly person. Psalm Proverbs says to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, your own perspectives. Trust in God in all your ways and he will direct your paths. God, please do something and work in my heart by your word and by your spirit that I'm not a mule. But God, guide me with your eye. Guide me from your perspective, from the renewal of my heart, by the power of the Holy Spirit in the direction of your word. Pray to that end. Don't just confess your sins, but open the floodgate also of supplication towards God to help you do much, much better than you already do. And he'll guide you with his eye. He's promised to do it. Then David opens the third floodgate. And really it's a little bit out of order as far as the verses are concerned. But I'll put it for last because it's the most important, I think. Open the floodgate of a full understanding and embracing of justification, what we talked about today earlier, and imputation. Look in verses 1 and 2. David says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, in whose spirit there is no God. Blessed is the idea of not just happiness here on this earth and material blessings, fleshly joy. The idea is a deep, deep inner peace with God. Knowing again that you have assurance. It brings joy when you know that you're assured that God loves you. And you're among his adopted people. You're among his tribe. And you know you're at peace in your heart. You have a pure or settled conscience. That's blessed. That's real joy. But how does it come? It comes through justification. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Wherein he takes all of our sins and forgives us because of Christ's imputation of his righteousness to us. David just shows one part of it here in Psalm 32. But David, excuse me, Paul quotes it in Romans in chapter 4. That there is a double imputation. First of all, what is justification? This past several weeks, few days, we've heard a lot about President Obama's pardons. More than anybody else has ever given in the history of the United States as president. Now, pardon means what? Your debt is absolved to society, done away with with a stroke of pen. Do you know what you still are? You're a pardoned fellow. Another step would be, <clears throat> excuse me, that I committed sin. I have maybe a 10-year sentence, whatever it might be, and, but I have some good uh, behavior and the parole board lets me out early. So there I am free, but what am I then? I'm still under probation. I'm still a criminal, just under probation. I can serve all my time, and what have I done? I'm a criminal that has paid his debt to society. Do you know what justification is? It's not pardon. It's not parole. It's not serving out your sentence. Justification is being treated as if 
It never, ever happened at all. How does God do that? A God that's just, how does he do that? What well, tells us here, David said, blessed is that man who God does not impute iniquity. In other words, back to that other term a while ago, iniquity, that God says has no guilt at all. And then Paul says, when he refers to this, he fleshes it out. And he says, also, blessed is the man that God imputes to him righteousness. There is a double imputation. First of all, my sins are placed on Christ. Fully discharged in Christ. It's called the active obedience of Christ. His active obedience of dying, excuse me, passive obedience of dying on the cross. But then there is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to me. My sins go that way. Christ's righteousness comes back to me. Jesus not only paid the price of my sins on the cross. He had positive righteousness. See, if all it was just my sins forgiven, I'm still at zero on the balance sheet. I have nothing that permits me, no righteousness of my own, because all my works are like filthy rags before God. But somebody had righteous acts that weren't filthy rags. Jesus, when he walked here on this earth, in his act of obedience before he died on the cross, Jesus loved God, with all his heart, and all his soul, and all his mind, and all his strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. He was positively righteous. And that merit is imputed to me. Adam, when he sinned in the garden, First thing he did, I've done this in chapel before I know, the first thing he did was what? Start looking for ways to cover his sin, his guilt. Fig leaf here, palm branch there, whatever it might have been. And those are all filthy rags. Don't get the job done. The Bible says that I am clothed, the saints are clothed in the righteousness of God. Jesus, loving God with all his heart, loving his neighbor as himself, is what clothes me and you as justified people. A figure, an illustration, or picture in my mind that's just too powerful to really grasp is somehow that Jesus could look at me and what he sees is Christ what he sees is the perfect obedience and perfect life of his son that bore my sins so that I could bear his image on the Let's bow together for just a moment.
just as if I've never sinned. And have all kinds of good deeds attributed to me because of Christ. Has some degree of sin or another caused you in the last days or hours to feel like that you're distanced from God's love? Has your conscience been in an uproar? Has your growth and grace come to a halt? Within the quietness of your own heart, what was that impetuous, impulsive act that you need to confess to God right now? What's that ongoing sin? You think about it and do it anyway. <laughs> Call it what it is before God. Own it. Because God is me. Not somebody else's fault. It's just me. Ask him to. Guide you with his eye. Turn you from a mule. Into a faithful servant. And embrace the image. God looking at you the same way he looks at Christ. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for that assurance that you give us of it. We thank you for peace of conscience, growth and grace, and we know that you'll help us because of your promises that we will persevere because we're preserved by you till the day we see you face to face. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.